Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is Monday. It, it, it feels like there's so much to talk about, including Time Magazine's Man of the Year. I was just, I was telling our, okay, but first of all, uh, Damon Linker is our guest today. So good morning, Damon. Thank you for coming on this podcast. I know you're a regular on the Bulwark podcast, uh, Mona Charon's podcast, but wanted you on this podcast today. So good morning. Well, good morning, uh, Charlie. Thanks for having me here. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm usually on uh, Beg to Differ with Mona, and uh, we have a great time over there, but it's uh, wonderful to come on over to yours today. So uh, un unlike, this will be a little bit different than Mona's podcast, because as I as I confessed to you right before we were starting, I'm really struggling with myself not to start this podcast conversation by saying, Elon fucking Musk? <laughs> <laughs> Really? He's the man of the year. Time magazine surveys the planet and comes up with Elon bleeping Musk. And, uh, and that uh, they, they, you know, they could have just said uh, the richest man on the planet <laughs> and put him on the cover. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I I don't know what to make of it other than, uh, you know, I used to work with Edward Felsenthal, who's the executive mm -hmm. editor at Time. Uh, he was at Newsweek when I was there. So he was my boss. And he really had a, a real tech bug. He really loved technical mm. innovations, including also science fiction. So I wonder wonder if if really Edward is hoping to get himself a seat on uh, on a SpaceX a shot to Mars or something. It's 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 <laughs> a, it seems to me a pretty you know obviously the guy's it, the guy's important. Uh, he's a big uh, you know, a big businessman doing some cutting edge stuff. But you know there are a lot of impressive entrepreneurs in this country and in the world. And uh, you know they also did an alternative cover for. Or, uh, heroes of the year. Yes. There, they they singled out uh, the doctors who uh, helped to create the vaccines. Now, that I think would have been a more worthy people of the year cover, uh, broader than just heroes of the year. Um, but you know, uh, the contrast maybe, is interesting, though, isn't it? It's kind of like a make good. Okay, so we put this self indulgent, narcissistic, you know, sometimes crackpotty uh, billionaire make him the man of the year. But we're also going to acknowledge all of these healthcare workers who have been heroes during the pandemic. We'll just make like a separate like a place for them. Well, you know, time know. has been moving in this direction. First of yeah. all, when they switched from man of the year to people of the year, and then they they yeah, tend to do multiple covers to sort of uh to kind of cover all bases, make sure that they they don't uh, alienate any potential constituency, if there is even a constituency for reading weekly news magazines at this point. I mean, does does time really uh, have much of a readership in 2021? I'm not I'm not sure. It's clearly a brand that still yeah. means something and is worth something. Uh, and I think that's what this is a kind of branding exercise. And why not brand yourself as on the same team as the richest man on the planet? I just, I just think at some point they're they're going to just blend in Sports Illustrated swimsuit edition with the person of the year or something. It seems like it's trending that way. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Uh, <laughs> bikini of the year. <laughs> so there, there, there are um, really important things to talk about, uh, which I want to get to, including the, the fact that, that all of the coup plotters 
wrote out memos and PowerPoints and everything. I mean, they put it in writing because of course they would put it in writing, right? I mean, these are, this is, this is sort of the, the, the Jussie Smollett's of insurrection. I mean, it's like, yes, make sure you make it as implausible as possible. Before we do that though, I, and I put it in my newsletter yesterday, I thought it was kind of a BFD that uh, Chris Wallace announces that he is quitting Fox effective immediately and then within five minutes jumps to CNN. I mean, that's not the way these things usually play out, is it, Dan? No, definitely not. I mean, I would say it, if there is any room I would like to be a fly on the wall of, it would be like behind the scenes at Fox News. I, I wrote a column about this a week or so ago about the the lies by Trump and so many Republicans these days and Tucker Carlson. You have to wonder, and I wonder all the time, are they knowingly lying or have they kind of gone over the threshold into actually believing the lies? Like, are they mm -hmm. literally in another reality or are they in our reality, but just BSing for profit and power? And in this case, Evergreen I, you know, question. Yeah. I mean, I, it, I, it, it, it leaves me pretty flummoxed most of the time because you listen to someone like Tucker and, and the other leading primetime folks over at, at Fox. And you just have to wonder, like, you know, I once thought you had some potential intelligence, but but the person right. speaking here sounds like a deranged lunatic. So I don't know what to believe. And someone like Chris Wallace, sort of like Jonah Goldberg and then his uh, his other colleague from the Steve Wall Hayes. Yes, yeah. Steve Hayes. They both quit about a month ago. And that wasn't that surprising because they were both sort of offsides from mm. what was going on, in, especially on the prime time side. But, you know, Chris Wallace comes from the more straight news side of the network, and any hope that uh, anyone watching Fox occasionally hoped that there could remain that divide where, well, at least if you watch at like 5 p.m. on a weekday or on the weekend, you might get something more straight news. Uh, that that distinction, I think, is in the process of collapse. And you yeah. want to wish you could have heard what was Chris Wallace saying I know. to the bosses as this was heating up, as he was getting close to this move. Like, well, you know, there were two red lines. I mean, it was the, the red line that caused uh, Jonah Goldberg and Steve Hayes to quit was the Tucker Carlson, you know, absolutely insane revisionist history of January 6th. Yeah, the documentary. And, and we, we've heard that, that Brett Baer and Chris Wallace had both objected to that raised concern. Chris Wallace had his contract expiring at the end of the year. Now, obviously, this is part of the, the negotiation. And at some point, he just decided, I, I can't take this anymore. You know, he hasn't said that yet. So Peter Weiner had a good tweet about this yesterday. You probably saw it. He said, the conversation Chris Wallace had with himself might have gone something like this. I can be a journalist with integrity or I can work at Fox News. I can't do both. <laughs> and since he has integrity, um, I'm glad for his sake that Mr. Wallace left the Tucker Carlson Patriot Purge Network. You know, there is this the self-deportation of the same reasonable people that you see in politics that you're seeing um, in Congress, you're seeing the same thing in, in Fox. So the result is that Fox doesn't become better. Fox becomes more Tucker-esque, right? 
Yeah, that's right. But I think in both cases, the end result is kind of democratic principles, at least within the electorate of the right. So the reason why you know Adam Kinzinger or or uh, uh, Cheney or any mm-hmm. of the others who are kind of headed for the exits is because there is insufficient support for them among the Republican electorate. Whereas yeah. uh, it, the same thing is, I think, at play on Fox News that they're they're probably isn't much of a kind of ratings reward for having the kind of straight serious news that a Chris Wallace or a Brett Baer brings brings to the network. He doesn't get them ratings, whereas what gets them ratings is Tucker Carlson, who beats everyone else in primetime at Fox and the competition on the other networks. There is clearly an audience for the swill. And so if the bottom line is what counts, that's what's going to prevail. And it's sad, but you know, it's, it it's is, our dynamic. It's reality. Yeah. It is the hard dynamic, and the audience wants a safe space. They don't want that contrarian there. I mean, if they wanted it, uh, this might have played out a little bit uh, a little bit differently. So, uh, interesting weekend, um, as we find out more about the, uh, the PowerPoint presentation. Kind of don't take the Jenna Ellis memo terribly seriously, but... It is interesting this 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 bizarre uh, PowerPoint that includes you know declaring a national emergency and seizing the voting machines, written by this retired colonel, and it seems pretty clear that it was circulated in the White House. He did meet with Mark Meadows. Members of Congress saw it. Members of the right wing media saw it. Laura Logan, apparently, a uh, former CBS correspondent when she was rational now a fox head uh, tweeted it out on january 5th so you, your thoughts about the fact that that, that we, we are now getting documentary evidence of how extreme these ideas were that were floating around on the eve of the january 6th insurrection riot coup yeah it, it's really quite a change from the kind of uh, full court press that you were getting in the few days right after the election where everyone was taking to the op-ed pages all the conservatives the republicans are saying oh you know all we have to do is just do some recounts of course donald trump what is going to leave office this is just you know letting the process play itself out mitch mcconnell took that position too at first like, like okay well you know it's okay we have plenty of time it's still early november let's do some recounts just make sure and verify that the vote was valid and then as of course the the weeks unfolded and increasingly every recount just returned the same results and and then the the trump forces started going from judge to judge to judge and each of them threw out the claim after another until there were dozens of judges at all levels of the courts throwing out the claims by the time you get to the beginning of january you have 36 page powerpoint presentations circulating in the white house and of course <laughs> the the primary audience for this was Trump. These were people trying to win favor with him by by feeding his insatiable appetite for bullshit to justify his incapacity to accept the truth, which is, you know, I I tweeted this uh, a couple of days ago. It's really amazing that this movement that is portraying itself as the great defender of masculinity and courage and manliness is led by a guy who in the end was incapable of having enough courage to accept 
accept the bare fact of reality that he lost a free and fair election. And all of this, including the memo and the talk of declaring a national emergency to delay the transition, which is basically a coup, all of this follows from that fact, that fact that Trump could not accept the truth. And you have all these people around who desperately want him to think of them as on his side and loyal supporters. I mean, if you look at the PowerPoint, it, all it is is a distillation of all the nonsense right. that had been shot down by all of these judges, including the Supreme Court. They all just sort of roll their eyes like, what are you talking about? There's no evidence of anything here. Oh, Chinese control of the voting <laughs> machines. Right. Sure. Chinese control of the voting machines. Right. Unless, except for all the states where Republicans won. They there's no Chinese, you know, it's all it, it's all just kind of post hoc excuses to explain why Trump lost. Yeah. And, and then the half life of these lies is, is obviously much longer than any of us would have imagined back then. I mean, the fact that they're still out there, which, which I don't want to obsess about the whole person of the year thing. But you think about, you know, you know, should have been maybe person of the year. Here's a really unpopular position. Maybe that 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 QAnon shaman guy. Can you imagine him on the cover as sort of a symbol of the derangement of our politics? The uh, that you know you talk about uh, you know how our our politics have been you know, overwhelmed by you know crackpots and conspiracy theorists and you know almost the the, the election almost overthrown all of that. He he would have been a good choice. Um, well, you know, somewhat controversial. I mean, if you're not if you're not going to go with with the the, the coronavirus and the, and the heroes that, that fought that, you know, I think it would have been. That would have been an edgy choice. Is why I'm not the editor of Time Magazine. So. No, no, I, I, I would bet you that uh, uh, Ed Felsenthal there at Time had a meeting where he told everyone, "I expect to have a long list of possibilities here," and I bet you someone proposed that. And it is a good, really? it, it is a good <laughs> suggestion. It certainly would have been a hell of uh, a cover. Uh, yeah, it would have been a great cover, and it would have really sparked discussion. Um, I, I don't know if it would have done any good. Probably not. Nah, no, nothing, nothing does, does any good. <laughs> so you have been involved in a really interesting debate that I wanted to talk to you about. Um, and, and again, people can follow Damon Linker's writing in both on social media, but also um, a you are a columnist for The Week. This question about can journalists save American democracy? I, I really did find that to be an interesting discussion because, you know, I, 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 I've argued that you know, that since 2016, it's obvious the model of journalism has been broken. Um, I don't know how to, I personally don't know necessarily how to fix it. So you've had this debate about what role the media played in Trump's victory. And it's really kind of surged. And you wrote a column about all of this. And so I want you to kind of sort this out. The Washington Post, Dana Milbank and Jay Rosen, who is a journalism professor at NYU, are, are, ma are basically making the point that, that the media needs to take sides more aggressively. I mean, Milbank wrote this, uh, you know, widely discussed column that uh, press coverage of Biden has been unrelentingly negative, um, that basically his his uh, coverage is just as bad as Trump's in his worst year. And, and Rosen, Professor Jay Rosen, has really been kind of relentless, uh, never stopped ripping the, the media for their Trump coverage, for, for not adequately capturing, calling out of his lies, and now this post-Trump coverage that treats the two parties equal. I mean, so basically, both Rosen and Milbank are, 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 are you know, they want the dangers the Trump, you know, and the Republican parties represent to be consistently described 
and to place them in a category separate from just you know normal things that go on in politics. So you you have a different point of view on all of that. So so talk to me about your take on this. What is the role of journalism going forward? And and can journalists be expected to save American democracy by doing what Milbank and Rosen are suggesting? Well, from your setup, probably no one will be surprised. My view is that it, it, they can't, that it is not the role of journalists to decide that, okay, the Democratic Party is legitimate, but the Republican Party is illegitimate, and we are going to treat the Republican Party uh, in that way and explicitly like look at what's happening with Biden. So Biden pulls out of Afghanistan. We have like two or three weeks of kind of chaos with these horrible images of people holding on to the airplane wheels and falling to their deaths, desperate to get out of Afghanistan. Uh, there's the attack at the airport that kills around a dozen Jeez. people. It's 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 an ugly scene there. Then we head into the fall, and that's followed by uh, the revival of COVID with the Delta variant right after, you know, just a couple months after Biden had declared independence from the pandemic. Uh, you have the rise of inflation. You have Congress you know, inability to pass the big spending bills after six months of deliberating. Lots of stories that are kind of negative, and that's where Dana Milbank gets his data to show that the press is inappropriately being kind of both sides-ish about this, saying like, oh, well, Trump was bad, but Biden is bad too, equality between the parties. The problem is that Dana Milbank and Jay Rosen's uh, approach to this would imply that the press should not have been critical about all those things about Biden that I listed. See, to that's what I didn't get. Yeah. To sort of to, to say, in effect, even if Biden is having some trouble, we have to prioritize the fact that however bad Biden is, Trump and the Republicans are worse. Therefore, we have to sort of protect Biden, insulate him from criticism, because if he and the Democrats lose over the next couple of election cycles, the re the contrary uh eventuality is so bad with Trump, say, becoming the nominee again and then maybe winning in 2024, which could be so terrible, or even if he comes in just a narrow loss and reenacts uh, January 6th, even worse, with state legislatures now being in his pocket and so forth. These are our nightmare scenarios, and I worry about them a lot. The thing that's the problem, in my view, is that journalists can't be in this role Paradoxically, because the more they do that, the more they make it even more explicit that they are on one side of our political divide, the less influence and authority well, and trust they have with the very people they would need to be persuading to make a difference. Yeah, it, it accelerates that yeah. that that rejection that that sense the media cannot be trusted. The media is partisan. Therefore, I'm going to become more firmly uh, attached to my alternative reality silo here. And nothing you say is going to penetrate all of that. So it it accelerates a negative trend that's and we've already seen the consequences of. Exactly. Journalists cannot. They are essentially are saying we need and by we where we're talking, not just say Fox News and some right-wing magazines with with not very large circulations, a few newspapers. Uh, they're talking about 
taking the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, all of which were very actively anti-Trump through uh, the last four years during the Trump administration. But but now, like, kind of amping it up even more, turning them into kind of progressive-minded versions of Fox News, where everything they report is is skewed through the lens of the threat to American democracy posed well, by the right. And it's MSNBC. Yeah, basically, and all <laughs> yeah. of it becomes MSNBC. I, yeah. And. Again, I agree substantively with almost everything that this, these folks are saying about the threat that Republicans pose, but that is not the role of journalists to make that case. Uh, because as, as I said, and as you reiterated, all it ends up doing is, is just further undermining the authority of these people so that they right. have even less influence over public opinion. So it's a but maybe that's already gone. I mean, you you point out that it may already be too late for mainstream journalists to demonstrate their fairness. So what do right. they do? Exactly. What do they well, do? all they can do is to strive to be uh, better at what they do. And that does not mean uh, constantly reverting to what's called among media critics, both sidesism. Like, uh, oh, well, Trump did these yeah. Trump did these bad things. But look, Biden is also doing bad things and they're equivalent because we have two parties and they're the same. That isn't what journalists should be doing. They should simply be striving as much as they can to aspire to fairness, meaning you, you and accuracy, accuracy, right. you try, yeah. well, yeah, or, or yeah. fair and balanced Get as right. Fox yeah. kind of has turned into a, a kind of cynical mockery of the principle, but that is the principle of journalism that you try to be fair and accurate and truthful uh, and fact-based in what you say. And so that when the critics come at you, you can point to your own scrupulousness and say, hey, knock it down. And the problem is that in addition to partisanship infecting coverage very often, a kind of sloppiness has entered into it. And this is driven by the speed of the news cycle, by uh, kind of the, the imperative to kind of get the story up on Twitter before anybody else. So journalists have always been driven by the desire to get a scoop. But now uh, you you put your finger on the scoop and attach your name to it by a tweet, and you can send out a tweet in five seconds. And so, usually, what journalists are supposed to do is you you know you kick the tires, you take it out for a test run, you you know call people for comment on the other side and see if if they complicate the story. But corners are being cut in the interest of trying to get out there first to get the clicks, to get the ratings. And uh, the end result is a kind of sloppiness that allows uh, the bad actors on the other side to say, see, they're just as corrupt as we always said they were, the kind of the Molly Hemingway beat. So let me just put back a little bit here. So Jonathan Carl made the point just a couple of weeks ago that, you know, Trump 2.0 in 2024 is going to be a real challenge for the media, that the media cannot simply cover him like a normal candidate, that he is an anti-democratic candidate, and therefore some of these rules need to be changed. Now, he didn't, he didn't get into real specificity about what he means, but I certainly understand the point he's making. So, I mean, when when a guy like Jonathan Carl 
um, who is a solid reporter, says, look, it can't just be journalistic business as usual for you know, a, a Trump reelection campaign. Do you disagree with that? I'm not sure how that plays out. That's my, my, I guess that's the big question mark I have hanging over that. Well, sure. I mean, I agree it's a huge problem. I mean, that's the, the, one of the core uh, challenges that Trumpism poses for a free press and democratic uh, civil society. And it's not just the explicit uh, attack on American democratic institutions, like trying to overturn the vote, that that obviously is a major, major problem. But this is a subtler one. This this kind of reveals the fact that a democratic civil society, including a free press, only really can function adequately in the presumption of good faith on the part of political actors. That when people say things, they themselves at least think what. What they're saying is true. And the possibility that Trump deep down knows he lost in 2020 and yet is going to run for president in 2024 every single day repeating the conscious lie that it was actually a stab in the back and that it was corrupt and he actually in fact won if he says that that puts journalists in the position either of doing straight reporting and saying Donald Trump gave his stump speech today in Illinois where he again talked about how the election was stolen from him four years ago. Or so if they do that, they simply sort of tacitly verify the lie by amplifying it for a general audience. Or they take the other line, which is to to kind of frame it in what sounds like a kind of editorial way and say, Donald Trump repeated his lie about the election having been stolen from him. And the fact that lie is then put in the headline seems to be a kind of bias against Trump when in fact it's a factual statement. <laughs> right, right. And, and yeah, so and I don't, was, I don't right. have a great answer in, in how to cover that. That's, I see but that's, it. That's a, that's a good, pretty good specific thing though, because there was once a time when journalists would not use the word lie. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when there were big discussions about that's going too far. You know, we have to reserve this for the most extreme circumstances. But now I think there's a recognition you can't write about the guy without using the accurate word, which is he's lying. Yeah, I mean, I go back in my writing about Trump very often to the very first days of the Trump administration in early 2017. I think it was the weekend immediately after his inauguration when he went to CIA headquarters in Langley and he stood there oh. and and asserted in front of the staff of the CIA and the press that he had had the biggest crowd of any inauguration ever, even though there was photographic evidence showing that he had considerably fewer people there than Obama yeah, had yeah. had. What else are you saying? And, and the, the fact that he continually said it and then made the press secretary, Sean Spicer, repeat it over and over again over the following days, <laughs> sort of... Hell of a start. It, it, yeah, it sort of asserted like, my presidency from the very beginning is going to be me outrageously lying, not just lying in the way that a lot of politicians always sort of slightly warp reality around a, a narrative that's good for them and their side. This is this is like, uh, you know, who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes <laughs> that you can see in this photograph? And 
how a press, how citizens are supposed to respond to this. It's like the ultimate power grab. Like I not only am president, I am going to seize control of reality and your own brain's ability to process it and take over that for you. That's a, that's a scary kind of authoritarian epistemology right there. So this relates to it, and something else that you've written about it, you know, worldwide democracy. And and you you wrote a piece, you know, talking about how raising the question is social media destabilizing the democratic world. I mean, you you pointed to this this finding from this new Pew Research Center analysis that, that found that large numbers of people in a long list of countries, not just us are dissatisfied with how their democracies are working and this restlessness is fueling a drive for more radical change. So some numbers here. A median of 56% across 17 advanced economies surveyed this year say their political system needs major changes or needs to be completely reformed. So you ask the question, why is this happening now? And why in so many different places at once? What's the answer? Well, it's a complicated question. I do think what we see with social media is that it enables, and, and, and I'm going to refer to the, found, uh, the founding fathers, especially James Madison here. Uh, Madison talked about how a Republican government, small r Republican government, works by factionalism being dispersed. So you try to basically, you have a continent-wide republic that tries to multiply the number of political factions out there so no one is strong enough to prevail over others unless there is a huge amount of support for that faction. So you sort of divide and conquer the electorate and kind of keep everything checks and balances, not just within Washington, but in the electorate as a whole, kind of like all these different jostling factions of interest. Uh, what social media allows is that people in a faction, including a very radical faction, say of the far right, can link up with similar people in other parts of the country where they never could before. Like if you were a member of the KKK in like uh, 1920s Indiana, you only could really organize a KKK rally with your like local clan right. members, right? It was like, what was it going to be? A few dozen people? And you might know that you were part of an organization that had other chapters in other states, but they were far away. You couldn't communicate with them or really do very much. Now, if you're a kind of far out conspiracy theorist who's, who's fallen into the Trump world, you can link up with hundreds of thousands or millions of like-minded people all over the country. So rural voters, Voters in Michigan, uh, Virginia, Georgia, Oregon, all of you can meet together in, uh, in Facebook groups or on Twitter and podcast listeners, and you kind of organize a faction nationally that before you couldn't do without social media. But this also works internationally. And so what we're seeing is a kind of kinship being felt by right-wing culture warriors around the world. So like Bolsonaro voters in Brazil feel kinship with Trump voters here. Same with Le Pen or uh, uh, Eric Zemmour. Yeah, Zemmour. Zemmour and Le Pen together are taking like 30% of the vote uh, in the polls leading up to the French election next year. Uh, the AFD, Alternative for Germany Party in Germany, 
uh, and then of course Orban and Hungary, all these people in all these different parts of the country, the world, speaking different languages with different histories, all sort of see each other as being similar. And similar, it works on the progressive side too, where a lot of the uh, the Black Lives Matter energy and angry protest here from the summer of 2020 ended up being reproduced in countries around the world. You see it also with like the kind of rainbow flag for gender rights. Hmm. That's flown all over the world by progressives in countries everywhere. It's almost as if it's not so much that we used to have a drive toward globalism in the 90s and now we have nationalism. It's almost as if globalization has continued. It's just that it's it's kind of lumpy, uh, lumpy internationalism <laughs> where like you actually, it's almost yeah. like we have the, the rudiments of a world state where right-wing and left-wing factions are the same in all these different countries. And they're doing battle internationally. Uh, it, it's a, and I do think social media has a lot to do with well, it because it helps people network. And what's also interesting is that at one time we would have thought that that in that kind of a universe that American ideals would then be able to be spread throughout the world, democratic values. What in fact is happening is these authoritarian, anti-democratic, anti-liberal attitudes are coming back, sort of being reflushed back into our culture. How else do you explain? watching, say, a Tucker Carlson essentially parroting Russian propaganda about Ukraine. So many of the things that, you know, Orban's illiberalism would at one time have been confined to Hungary, and yet it has been able to go global and influence the right wing here in this country. So that's also sort of upended the flow of ideas that we had, I think, taken for granted that we were the shining city on the hill. And the more people that would see us, the wider these liberal democratic values would spread. And we're finding out that's not necessarily so. Well, if you dig into that Pew survey that you mentioned that I, I linked to in my piece, uh, there's other data in there that I didn't directly write about, about how Americans themselves no longer think of America as a kind of beacon of democracy. We yeah. ourselves, and this is self-fulfilling because the more that, you know, Trump is in the White House and doing his nonsense and, and the right does, uh, you know, it's kind of toxic spewing of conspiracies into the culture, the more it really feels like, geez, maybe we're not any kind of beacon for anything. Maybe our democracy is pretty sick in and of itself. So we yeah. used to think of ourselves in that role, but we sort of have ceased to do so because we recognize that we have these problems and you have the faction on the right and then some on the far left who are kind of churning out this message that, you know, basically we suck, <laughs> which is the irony well, of Trump, you know, the great American nationalist who like the half America the first, time what no. he says is things like, oh, like you think we're any better than Russia? You know, we kill people too. You know, he, <laughs> that was his his great uh, line that if the left uh, I, said I thought it, that was one of his signature lines, right? Well, you wrote something very edgy about this, though. You said that democracies are too obsessed with democracy. <laughs> and, you know, there was that that summit for democracy last week uh, with, you know, Biden you know, had you know, 100 world leaders intended to counter democratic backsliding and face down authoritarian forces. But if I get your argument correctly, you're basically arguing that, the, that our tensions with Russia and China 
really doesn't have anything to do with them not being democracies. It has to do more with power and clashing interests. So you, you're a you're a foreign policy realist. Yes, aren't you? I, mean, I that's, am. And uh, on that, on the Beg to Differ podcast, I'm always kind of the outlier. Uh, I'm begging to differ <laughs> a fair amount because mm-hmm. everybody else on there is uh, more uh, kind of in favor of a, a more traditional kind of Republican line, at least Reaganite line on America uh, having a kind of almost providential role in spreading democracy around the world. And I, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's irrelevant. I mean, obviously, it has tended to be the case, especially since the end of World War II, that democracies don't go to war with each other. And so you have this whole literature among political scientists uh, about the so-called democratic peace. I, as a realist, uh, I tend to think that this is at least as much a function of American hegemony, that we were kind of the backstop for that peace uh, within the democratic world, providing defense for much of that world. And so there was no incentive with under that umbrella to kind of pick fights and do battles about things. Um, So I'm not sure that it's democracy per se, but of course it matters and we need to pay attention to what, say, China is doing internally uh, to the Uyghurs and and, uh, vis-a-vis Uh, Hong Kong, of course. I mean, it's important because it's more information about what their uh, government is willing to do, how it looks at the world and act and so forth. But I do think that it is entirely possible for Hmm. American interests to be advanced and protected by making deals and finding ways of getting along with other countries, even if they're not democracies, provided with one one thing, one proviso, that it isn't the Cold War. Now, during the Cold War, it made sense to talk about democracy because the other side was animated by a, a totalizing ideology that sought to get rid of democracy and replace it with totalitarian communism. So if if China and Russia were devoted to that kind of an ideological project, then I would say, yeah, of course, that kind of thing does matter more. But in our current situation, I just don't see that. I think Russia is trying to uh, project power to its near abroad to areas where it has tended to do so in Georgia and especially Eastern Ukraine, uh, which I don't think is great and certainly isn't for the people who live there. But I mm-hmm. also don't see it as like the first step toward him trying to like conquer Germany and France. Like that's not in the cards. And I think that it's probably better for us to, first of all, prioritize China over Russia. I think China is a a great potential threat to the United States. Russia, I really don't think is with its economy one twelfth the size of ours. And uh, it's kind of remembering. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, for for Europe, yeah, you know, Europe, there are problems. It's their border there. Uh, And I think we need to watch it. Uh, We need to be on top of it. But I don't see that as our primary primary point Mm -hmm. of concern. I think Taiwan and China should be. And I think we need to be thinking about it in terms of power, Hmm. China being a rising power. Of course, that is going to bring them into a kind of tension with us, because since the end of World War II, 
we have, or at least the immediate post-war period, we've had troops stationed in Japan and South Korea. We've sort of tacitly uh, provided security guarantees for a semi-independent Taiwan. And, uh, you know, if China wants to extend its sphere of influence, we're going to be on a collision course with them. And it's in terms of that clash, I would rather our people in power be thinking rather than in terms of, but we have to have regime change in China in order to deal with them, mm. which I don't think is realistic at all. Not at all. So let's, let's pivot a little bit. Okay. Because I, I want to talk about something that happened to you on social media last week. Okay. You had an interesting, you had an interesting experience, didn't you? Uh, I'm looking at your tweet from December 4th. What an amazing website this is. You say of Twitter. I can get a tweet to go viral just by saying adoption is good, not adoption is always good, not let's outlaw abortion and force women to give their babies up for adoption. Instead, just the words adoption is good, as in not bad. You're welcome. And then you followed that up the next day saying, this weekend I learned that there's an activist subculture in this country that really, really dislikes adoption. This, I thought, was an, it was a fascinating moment. So just tell me about it because you weren't taking a political position. You just said, hey, you know what? Adoption is good. And this triggered this mini Twitter avalanche of, of, of outrage. Yeah, there was actually a previous tweet that I was talking about in the first one you read from a few days prior to that where all I did was just said... It's going to take a lot of courage to say it, but I'm here to do it. Colin, <laughs> adoption is good. And that tweet, I think by now, has almost 3,000 likes and, and several hundred comments from people angrily de denouncing it. So that's what I was referring to in that other <laughs> tweet. And, and, and it has been going on now for well over uh, a week. I don't know what to make of it exactly, except exactly what I said in the tweet, that they're apparently, and this goes back to my comment about social media and its ability to kind of allow factions to find each other and form bigger factions. There is a subculture in this country of people who were adopted, who had bad experiences with this and have sort of become anti-adoption activists. They sort of think that adoption is a racket. It's controlled by powerful companies that charge tens of thousands of dollars to wealthy families to get babies. And it's involved with human trafficking from Guatemala and other countries around the world where poor babies are stolen from their mothers and put up for sale mm. and they make tons of money. Now, I, I'm sure there is some anecdotal support for some of this. There usually is beneath these yeah. activists subcultures. But the thing is, many of the people who not only like participated by responding with one tweet, but then got involved in my mentions for days afterwards, arguing with people, I, I didn't really engage with it. I just sort of observed it. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're basically caught in the, what the, the blast radius of the Amy Coney Barrett comments about abortion, but that was not the debate you were getting into, right? I mean, no, you were it, just it wasn't. I mean, that was yeah. the occasion because yeah, I, I, I mean, saw a bunch right. of people starting to attack uh, adoption because Amy Coney Barrett brought it up in yeah. oral arguments. 
in the Mississippi case. But and that wasn't really what people ended up arguing about. It ended up being mainly about how I like are, you know, I, I, I didn't take this personally and I didn't respond to much of it, but a lot of people attacking me like, how can you be so ignorant as to not realize how terrible adoption is? And most of the accounts that were doing this, when I checked who they were, they, they had adoptee in their bio. So they're like defining their identity huh. as this, and then it becomes the thing that they're partly living for is fighting against this thing in my life that made me miserable, made me unhappy, caused me pain. I'm going yeah. to make that go away. And that's that's drives a lot of, I think, usually uh, more progressive social activism, the sense of like something happened in my life. I can explain it as part of a bigger structural problem, and I'm going to go to war over that. Um, so that's sort of what I I've yeah. discovered that there is something about adoption like this in the country. And well, then that that is interesting. I mean, I guess part of it is that look, adoption is fraught. It is nuanced. It is complicated. Uh, it can be wrenching, which means that it is uh, almost the perfectly awful issue to be subjected to debate on social media, which is not good about uh, in dealing with any of those those issues. And because adoption is good. Yes. Is it always good? Should it be mandatory? No, nobody is saying this. But it is interesting what people do fixate on. Um, and I don't know where you come down on this. I, I think it's a taste of the way the culture wars are going to escalate next year. I know there are some people who think, no, no, no. If Roe versus Wade is overturned, it's not going to be the big deal you think it is. Trust me. It is going to, I mean, cry havoc and let loose the dogs of culture war. And, and this is just like a, a corner of it, giving you a, a sense of what it's going to be like. I Maybe. I That actually is an issue. Like, I came down on the other side when we talked about mm -hmm. this on the Beg to Differ podcast. I, I just... I think if you ask most Americans who are not especially informed about constitutional law um, and you ask them what will happen if Roe v. Wade is overturned, I think most people would probably say, oh, abortion is going to be outlawed, whereas it will only be outlawed in the states that outlaw it. And in basically the states that are overwhelmingly dominated by, by blue voters Democrats, progressives, liberals, it is nothing's going to change as a result of this. So I'm not actually that sure how salient of a political issue it's going to be. I mean, I don't know. I know though there will be protests. There will be marches. Washington will probably have a million or so people show up there like they did right after Trump took office. So it'll be a thing. Whether it would be a decisive um, factor in the 2022 midterms, I just don't know. Yeah, well, none of us know how that's going to play. However, this is where I think it becomes very unpredictable how it's going to play out. So in Wisconsin, we're pretty evenly divided back and forth. And it seems unlikely that you would have uh, really draconian new laws passed here in Wisconsin. However, there are laws already on the books. And there are a number of states where these sort of dormant laws are there. So the question is, Roe goes away, do those laws suddenly become activated and will they be enforced? What happens in a state like Wisconsin if, in fact, uh, you have DAs who make the decision or a new Republican governor who says, yes, we're now going to enforce it? There could be some surprises here that we don't see coming where where you, you presume that that the, the fight is ahead of you about legislation when, in fact, you're going to start sort of as an archaeological dig 
laws on the books for decades that's now suddenly start glowing. No, no, that's a good point. If if that is the case, I mean, of course, in those cases, you're going to have political calculus enter into it on the part of, of, you know, in in each state, it could be different, could be the governor, could be the DA, could be uh, various prosecutors at an even more local level who have to make the call. Are we actually going to start prosecuting and investigating this based on this law that was passed in, I don't know, 1946 and has been in abeyance since 1973 and probably wasn't really enforced much, say, for 10 years before that? Um, and and that those could become lightning rods if, in fact, you do see states that are narrowly divided that uh, sort of rely on an old law rather than having to do the hard work of passing a new one. Exactly. Damon Linker, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Uh, Damon Linker is a columnist uh, at The Week, regular on the Bulwark Weekly podcast, Beg to Differ, and his books include The Religious Test, why we must question the beliefs of our leaders. Damon Linker, thanks for joining me this morning. Thanks for having me. It was great. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again.